0: You're listening to Cooper
1: Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I got to tell you something, people. The gentleman on my show today was actually on my show over four years ago. And he was nice enough to comp me to his show at the TLA in Philadelphia, right there on South Street. And I just moved back from LA and I hadn't had a cheesesteak from Jim's. So after seeing a great show, I stopped by Jim's, I got a cheesesteak, and I was a happy guy. And uh, he's, he's, a, he's got a great band. He has a, a really great good great new album. I can say great. I listened to it. I listened to it when I was taking a walk the other day, and I really enjoyed it. It's called Hard Rock Night. And from Enough is Enough is Chip's Enough. How you doing, Chip?
0: Pat, good to see you again. I, boy, I love playing TLA in Philadelphia. Well, my buddy Jackie Bam Bam, he comes down there and uh, hang, hangs out with the group every time we're out there. Good memories out in Philadelphia, singing the national anthem. For the Philadelphia Phillies, Boston Red Sox was a highlight one, and my one of the highlights out there.
1: Tell me, tell me how that happened. I, I never knew that about you. Tell me how was. It at the vet or was it at the new park? It was at the old place. Okay. Yeah, so we showed up there
0: and, and uh, we got called at the last minute. So the eight guys wanted to sing the national anthem. No budget. We weren't getting paid or anything for it. It was quite an honor to sing for it. It was the, one of the first inter squad games between uh, Boston Red Sox and the Philadelphia Phillies you know you didn't see that very often I think it was one of the first time they ever did it and we showed up there and it said uh, um, the Philadelphia Phillies welcome Howard Stern's favorite band and ups and up thought that was pretty cool well. and uh, and we and then we hung out on the field talking about women and 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 drinking with Tug McGraw it was fantastic memories out there
1: <laughs> Got it. and I didn't get a chance to throw the first pitch I would have loved to have done that are you? So, you
0: know, the actual and then we hung out with all the fans at at the end. It was really great. And then uh, right afterwards, they took us over to a place they have Philadelphia Philly, the Philly steak sandwiches, you know, and they were fantastic as well. And then rushed back. We we're on the road; we were touring at the time, so uh, good moments out in Philadelphia. And then they go back to TLA again to play on that tour with Ace Freely or with uh, that was actually with Jack Russell's Great White. Um, it was a fantastic crowd there. We were fouled around the struts everywhere. It was a good moment for me, uh, gave the band a lot of confidence playing a big room like that as well. Now I got to ask you
1: back to the national anthem. And I know people who've signed a national anthem before and they say it's scary as hell because there's so many people and there's, you can't really hear. What was your experience? Did you guys just get up and jam it or did you do it acoustically or, or how did you do it?
0: No, we did it a cappella. I remember we were in the, in the bathroom, uh, down the dugout and, uh, Don, he says, Hey, man, we got to write these words out. He didn't know the words of the National Anthem. (laughs) He sort of had a template of uh, an an idea on what to do. So we were writing, I was giving them all lyrics for a National Anthem. And then uh, he went out there and we uh, we nailed it. Uh, I got to be honest with you, it is difficult because there's an echo, a natural uh, echo that happens inside the stadium. So it's it's pretty challenging. Uh, But I think we nailed it. When I listened to it back, I thought it was fantastic. yeah the harmonies down it was a nice little two part and it worked out really well and the fans loved it as so that was good uh, but uh, i recommend that you rehearse it a little bit better than we did before going out there and trying something like that that's a tough endeavor and for, especially with all the fans that you don't get a second chance on the first impression
1: now i want to ask you about the new uh, the new album hard rock uh, hard rock night now okay you're Around my age, I, I've had a lot of guests who the Beatles were so influential to them because they saw them on Ed Sullivan, and it changed their life. How did you get so dedicated to the Beatles? What was it at a young age you saw them, or how did you get in, just come to love them?
0: Uh, mom and Dad playing those records. Oh, they're huge Beatles fans. You know, as we grow up as kids, we usually scorn what our parents played, but my mom and dad were playing. Rare Earth, Black Sabbath, early Led Zeppelin, Queen. There's a potpourri of different bands. In those early days, uh, the Beatles was a staple in our household. Uh, Played all those records. But I didn't really choose when it came to picking material. I I looked at 67 through. That's when the Beatles were really experimenting back then, you know, on those... uh, the very early stuff, the John Lennon solo stuff, you know, the Shea Fish record with whatever gets you through the night and mind games. And uh, of course, cold Turkey. Uh, that trip my trigger for sure. And McCartney stuff with, with, uh, with Linda and, uh, Paul McCartney and wings. That there was some great stuff on there as well. We wanted to try to navigate and pick the, some of the solo stuff along with the Beatles stuff, but everything's from 1967 up anything, but, uh, before that we didn't we didn't touch although maybe we, we crossed those paths later on. Uh, and then on the songs we just said let's just take a, rock, a hard rock approach to it uh, instead of calling it a hard rock uh, hard day's night we'll call it a hard rock night and we'll just bash out our favorite Beatle songs through that era and some of them were challenging uh, Eleanor Rigby that's more of a string composition but we put guitars on that playing through Marshall and Mesa Boogie Amplifiers and SBTs, And it was a hard rock approach to every single song on the record, uh, but without taking away anything of what the Beatles did. We, it was pretty much the arrangements are real close. And the same, the only, I think, difference on the, uh, on the whole record was we really, uh, looking back in hindsight, we took uh, the, the Ringo, Ringo Starr song and we did that we took the Joe Cocker's version of that. We, we we focused on that because we love what Joe Cocker did. Uh, and he was always a big, a big deal fan as well. Uh, but I, I really believe that it's a hard rock record and that's exactly what we do best is, playing through amplifiers. Just imagine Beatles playing these songs back in the, in, in today's day and age uh, through Marshall amplifiers and Mason Boogie said, I think it would be pretty interesting to be honest with you. Back then it was real uh, laid back pop tones. Uh, the recordings weren't uh, were totally bashed out. They only had four track and eight tracks to deal with. And we had 24 tracks here to uh, give us uh, the right uh, uh, technology that was needed to make a solid Beatle record. And um, with a little help from my friends, that was a, that was probably the most challenging song on the whole uh, record, to be honest with you.
1: Now, when you sit there and you you start to play them, it's like anything. You're gonna have the original version in your mind, and I know you can sit there and think it's gonna be the, the rock and roll version, and you're gonna have that in your mind, and you you, you know what people want to expect, and and you know. There's very closed-minded people who don't want to hear anything different. I love shit like this just because it's 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 a different twist on it. And to be honest, it's just... When you've heard songs, like when I've heard the songs done by the Beatles, as you say, since 67, okay? I mean, I've been hearing them all my life. So for you, it's, it's a great spin. But when you sat down and made the endeavor to re-record these, did the old versions ever get in your head when you were trying to come up with the new, uh, new versions.
0: Uh, I certainly did. Uh, especially the stuff we did off the White Album back in the USSR and Dear Prudence. Uh, obviously we reverted back to that. We used to play Dear Prudence in the set in the early, early days. People thought that Dear Prudence was an Enough's Enough song. At least our fans did. Even the guys in the band were we, they thought that Donnie and I wrote that. Uh, yeah, so you go back there's a, there's a template that's there. You listen to it. Uh, but a lot of these songs, we just went in and and pretty much just played them live, uh, and that was the approach we took on the whole record. It was we wanted to make a nice hard rock record, uh, showcasing uh, the Beatles songs through my rose-colored glasses. Uh, I'll tell you, Pat, when uh, we, we finished up the record, we recorded probably 17 songs, and we took the our favorite 10 and put them together on one disc. And at the end of the day, we went to our constituents and played them. And they were blown away. People couldn't believe it. I was doing this movie here in Chicago called uh, Cover 21. And uh, they had me playing on a song on, in the movie. So I went to the premiere. And afterwards, they had a big party. And it was probably 60, 70 people that were there. And the engineer, Chris Diamonds, who mixed the record, he's responsible for a lot of big records. He's got a, a studio called Stone Cutters on the north side of Chicago. Uh, he played the whole record its entirety, and people were coming to me, they were crying. They were blown away. And I thought, wow, we got something here that's bigger. The sum is bigger than the parts. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we, we, I think we might be the first band in the history of music to make a, a studio Beatle record outside of the Beatles. <laughs> that's,
1: uh, and I, I don't want to sound unmodest, but I'm pretty proud of that. Well, yeah, you should be proud of it. Now, what songs did it make the cut, and, and, and why not?
0: Uh, there was a few songs that didn't make the cut. Uh, Instant Karma was one of them that didn't make the cut. Uh, we thought we'd maybe hold that uh, hold that back for a later day. Um, Whatever gets you through night was another one that we were working on that I thought was a great one with uh, Elton John playing piano on that it was fantastic. Uh, we said maybe we'll hold that one off for a little while later too. Uh, you won't see me that was a great one as well uh off the top of my head I remember all of them there's so many songs It was like i said there was at least a, there's another seven or eight songs that uh, didn't make the cut uh but I think for a re- there's a reason why we held those held those back uh perhaps maybe they'll be around too we we'll see how this record does right now it's already sold out on the stores so that we haven't had a record that's done that pre-sales in 30 years so uh, we'll see what happens uh, with, what the future holds for us but I'd like to see those songs see the light of day one of these days uh, in the future. Um, uh, I know Revolution made the record. and That almost didn't make the record because that's one that we did years ago as well. But it seemed to fit the times right now and what we're dealing with in the world. So, uh, you know, we've really focused on John and Paul. But uh, I think it shows all the Beatles on this record, uh, on the performances. It's a great hard rock record at the end of the day.
1: Now, how how have you weathered through the shutdown we had as a musician, as you're used to being on the road? How how did you react to it when when you first heard of the news, and you may have been thinking, okay, this may not take for you know, may not last forever. How did you sit there and react and get used to all of a sudden knowing that you weren't going to be going the road for a while?
0: Well, we didn't know to be honest with you. Uh, our first approach to the this whole shutdown was, well, how can we stay busy and keep moving forward? Do we just sit back and wait until things open up or do we take the bull by the horns? And that's exactly what we did. We took the ladder. We went in the studio, immediately started recording not only this Hard Rock Night record, but my solo album and then another Enough Snuff album. Uh, I just read an re- article recently where Lenny Kravitz said he's made three records this year. That's a lot of material to come up with although there's plenty of subject matter to write about, to be able to get the studio and to have the time to lay down three albums. That's very challenging. Uh, But we found ourselves in a a unique situation. We all have recording studios, and we can all pass ideas out to each other. And that's exactly what we did. Now when it was time to get together in the same room, we did. And uh, I think that at the end of the day, when you look at, with any of the bands out there, you'll see next year, Uh, all the groups putting out brand new records because we all had time to make music. And why are we doing this? Well, we do it for ourselves. Uh, But we also do it for the fans too. We all want to go out and play shows. So you get the music together and then you got something to go out and tour with.
1: Now, what will be the difference between an Enough's Enough album and your solo album? How do you, because, you know, if you're writing, I mean, what's, what's, what's the difference? What's the sound? Explain it to me.
0: Uh, well, Pat, it's all songs at the end of the day. Uh, and I've mentioned that before earlier. That The songs come from somewhere. I don't know where. Uh, John Lennon said it best. Uh, all the great songs are already written. It's up to us as artists to find them and bring them down to you. Uh, it's hard to differentiate. Uh, the band's not playing. it. That's the difference, okay? I don't have Tory Stock Reagan, Tony Fennel, and Daniel Benjamin Hill on the solo records as much. Although Dan did come down and played drums on a few decks along with played some string arrangements for me too a guy's fabulous he does movies and soundtracks produces other bands and stuff so uh having Dan on the record was certainly nice uh but I went out and I got a, a bunch of musicians to come down and play with me on the record most notably Joel Holkstra from Trans-Siberian Orchestra and Whitesnake he was able to come down and play guitar on the record I got Dax Nielsen from Cheap Trick playing on the record. I even have Steven Adler from Guns N' Roses on one track that he did with me years ago that we never released called Honolulu, Boogie, the old Matahooka cover written by Ian Hunter. So maybe the record's different because of the different musicians that are playing on it. Uh, song-wise, uh, basically the, the, the solo record, it's called Perfectly Imperfect. It's out on Frontiers next year, and it's my heroine love letter to the new generation.
1: Now, you're the lead singer now. You weren't always a lead singer. What was it like to make that shift? Like, like when you sit there and go, you go from being, you know, and you're, you're people, you've been seen Chip, he always has great hats and great glasses. So he's gonna, you're gonna get attention to him on stage. But for for you, what was it like to make that shift to all of a sudden being the front man?
0: Uh, it's quite challenging. There's doubt about that. I remember years ago when Donnie left the band in 2013, he says, if you're gonna move on, you're gonna move forward with enough snuff. You sing the songs, at least the fans will know it's enough's enough. And maybe that was a backhanded jab, or maybe he was just confident enough to know that I might have a chance to be able to do this. Uh, but it was certainly a challenge. There's not about that in the early days. When our first tours, Pat. I'd have lyric sheets on stage because we couldn't afford a teleprompter, and I'd have lyric sheets on top of the monitors just to get through the songs because it's a lot of stuff to remember. Not only playing bass, but singing these songs is. Uh, it takes a little discipline. Uh, But the fans have spoken. The shows have been great. Wonderful turnouts. People love the records that we're putting out right now. Uh, I think I can navigate these waters. I certainly can wear this dress. Uh, But I'll never be able to replace uh, the great pipes of my brothers. But that's okay. Uh, I think that we have a great sound. It still sounds like enough snuff at the end of the day. Songs are strong. And the live performances are solid as a rock. You know, I got great musicians playing with me. Tony Fennell used to be with Ultravox and Edwin Starr. He took mid-year's place in Ultravox. That's a big league singer right there, a wonderful guitar player. Tory Stauffer, he had uh, the Black Mollies before this, and New Black 7, and Mother Load. He's had groups that he's played with for years and toured around the country. Fabulous guitar player with a great sense of balance. Daniel Benjamin Hill, as I mentioned earlier, a uh, Wonderful producer, great drummer. Shows up every single night with a smile on his face. Uh, he loves wine, women, and, and beautiful music, and that's what we play every single day. It's a formidable team. I have a strong band, and because of all the shows underneath our belt, we played, you know, six hundred gigs plus since we've been together like this. I, I think the proof is in the pudding. Band is solid as a rock. We show up every single day. We're grateful for the gig, and we got wonderful songs to play. Now,
1: how was it when you got back on the road after the shutdown? How excited were you? And did you have to sort of get used to getting your chops back on the first few days? Because it's like anything. I, I used to do stand-up comedy, and I have a lot of friends who are comics who, who weren't on stage for like, I don't throw anymore, but they were on stage for like a year and a half. And all of a sudden they go, we don't know if our timing is going to be right. We don't know if this and this. What was it like with your guys' first time back on stage When you already had played together, so you have the chops. We know that. But it's like anything. Did you feel a little, like you lost a little bit of the chops and had to gain them back? Or what was that first night like back?
0: No, it was good. No one knew what the landscape was going to be. Perhaps enough enough was like the human guinea pig back then. uh, Because nobody was touring. And this is the third time going around with our agency artists worldwide putting the tours together again. Because it kept canceling and postponing it. And we didn't know what to expect there. But when we got up on stage and started playing our very first tour, the very first show was a, a live streaming show for Larry Moran's uh, Monsters of Rock cruise, And we had about 30,000 people watching us. And we played nothing but Beatles songs, the whole thing. I think we did Fly and Michelle and New Thing in the set as well. But we just focused on the on the Hard Rock Night record. And people were blown away. They loved it. And then right after that, we got the tour with Faster Pussycat, straight out of quarantine, where we were, we're going around the country playing six nights a week. Uh, and there was a challenge there for sure. We had we had the old journey tour bus on that. made it a little easier for us for half the tour. And then the tour bus broke down. And uh, we ended up finishing the tour on a 15-seat a, a passenger van. We make it work no matter what, bro. These, these guys uh, have a, a wonderful, uh, they're like a, just a strong band that, Uh, we don't take no for an answer. And uh, the fans have spoken. They want to hear rock shows. They want to go out and see it right in front of their faces. They don't want to see anything uh, live streaming. If you're a big, huge band like a Metallica or somebody, and Queen, you can get away with those live streaming shows. Bands like us that are sitting in the middle, even though we're all swimming in the same lake, you got to get out there and play live every single night. And my guys embrace that. What got you into music?
1: Seriously, you know, you've had, you've had a very lengthy career. What what drew you to this life of rock and roll? Uh,
0: in the early days, I put together a band called Degeneration. We toured around the country. I was just graduating from Brother Rice High School, and I was traveling with the uh, band in a, in a small little car. We moved to California. I was living at my aunt's house, and uh, we moved the band over to Las Vegas, Had a guy named Bill Norvis, who was managing the band, And we just started playing shows, opening up for everybody. We did gigs with the Grateful Dead and with Boss Gags. That was the start of everything for me. Came back to, after the band broke up because uh, of personal issues, i.e. alcohol and uh, substance abuse, uh, I came back to Chicago and put together Enough's Enough. And I think what the, the, the catalyst to starting my musical career was in the old days when my mom and dad would let me watch uh, Don Kirshner's rock concert and the midnight special, and seeing Alice Cooper and you and uh, the Queen and, and Kiss and all those big bands, that was the start of it for me. I said I could do this for a living, uh, but maybe perhaps it was before that when I'm hearing records as a kid and I didn't know it because I played sports for uh, as a young boy. I was uh, a baseball player, and I, I after I graduated from high school, I got a chance to trial for the Milwaukee Brewers, Cincinnati Reds, Kansas City Royals, Chicago White Sox. Um, maybe all that stuff just came back to me, you know, the, from the early days, listening to Beatle records, to working my way through as a kid and putting a band together and going out and touring around the country. It all come back tenfold to me. Uh, but it's it's been really a blessing from the good Lord. I'm, I'm really one of the lucky ones. I'm the last of the Mohicans. There's not many bands that are going to be out there. that are going to be together, stay together like the Rolling Stones. Uh, but I don't know anybody that gears up a band for failure, and I always said uh, I'm going to take this as far as it'll go. And how did I know that here we are, 37 years into our career, still making records, still touring around the country? It's really a, um, uh, not the son and mass; it's a modern day miracle. <laughs> You're, I don't know how many guys are going to continue to do it. The newer bands, I I wish them well because you know the Greta Van Fleet's and the Rival Sons and the Dirty Honeys and the Vintage Troubles and lemon twigs those guys they got an uphill battle ahead of them uh it's going to take a lot of hard work and, and more than anything those bands are going to have to go out there and they're going to tour because you just can't depend on just the internet for people to go out and get your records you got to go play shows and maybe there's a movie or a tv show a soundtrack a commercial you can get into and help your branding that's the biggest thing if you can brand yourself uh it'll take you a little while it'll, it'll, it'll move the needle for you
1: now the music business has changed as you just said how did you guys get your first record deal? Because it seems like bands don't get record deals anymore. It's not like, you know, you guys, I mean, when I talk to a lot of musicians, you started off, you were playing live, you were getting a following, people were like, oh, this band kicks ass, and then all of a sudden, you would get it. How, how did you guys get your first record deal?
0: Uh, well, it was a happenstance. We, got, we were lucky. We, uh, we were in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, we were recording an album, we were doing our demos, why Skid Row was in the studio recording their record, their first debut record. I remember Sebastian Bach walking around the room. I go, this guy is a star. Look of the world. They had Michael Wagner in there producing the record. Adrian Blue and the Bears were in the studio too. Adrian, obviously, everybody knows him from early days of Frank Zappa and King Crimson. It was a, it was, it was a nice little thing that was happening around us. We were in good company. And Doc McGee heard a couple of songs that my management company played from my manager at the time was Bob Brigham. And Bob says, uh, Hey, doc's got your stuff. And he's, uh, he wants to talk to you guys. So we got a chance to sit down with doc. He says, I got three cassette tapes in my car. Two of them are your band. I have a friend of mine over at hologram. His name is Derek Shulman. He used to be the lead singer of general giant. And, uh, he's signing bands. He signed Cinderella and Bon Jovi. You know, perhaps he might like what you guys are doing. I think he would, I'm going to give him your tapes and say, hey, we said, thanks a lot. Not Unwittingly, not knowing what was going to happen. And from there, uh, Doc took the, the demo tapes, gave it to Derek. Derek hailed his band, flew to Chicago, seen us at a rehearsal. It was a debacle. Everybody's drinking and smoking and not paying attention. No discipline at all whatsoever. But Derek seen something in the band that was special. He loved the songs that we played from. And only two songs we did at the showcase, by the way. And the following day, he sent us a facsimile for a $250,000 record deal. And we, we, and we had nothing, too. We were a bunch of guys from Blue Island were just working jobs, doing everything we could, construction, uh, electricity, whatever it needed to try to get through the day and pay our rent. And uh, we were able to facilitate, uh, facilitate a deal through Atco Atlantic, and then right away we went right back to the studio and just started recording all the songs. We probably did the whole first album in a month. And then we got Paul Lanny, who was just finished up doing Peace Sells, Who's Buying by Megadeth. He came in to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin to mix the whole record. And, uh, you know, we thought we had something special. We didn't know exactly where we were going to go. And uh, Doc got us on our first tour. We were out with Badlands and that helped break the band, went down to MTV, met Rick Krim and all his constituents. Rick loved pop bands. We were a little bit different than what was happening back then with the Motley Crue's, the poisons, the white snakes, the Skid Rose. We were colorful and flamboyant, but the music when you listen to it on the radio or put it on a turntable pad, you didn't you didn't see people shaking their asses in the smoke machines, you just heard the songs and we had a little bit different of a sound. We may have came out a little bit late in eighty nine, but we had five years to work it up to to get to that point point. Pretty solid, formidable band then. And I think those earlier shows really helped solidify uh, at least a footnote for Enough's Enough. Uh, but uh, I give all I give all my praise uh, to uh, Doc McGee, who uh, believed in the band at the beginning. He noticed after we took our album cover pictures that the pictures for the cover was us in a dilapidated hotel room. He knew that wasn't right. Perhaps it would have been better if we just went out and uh, put the peace sign on the front of the cover for a better image anyway, and the songs were all about that as well. So uh, Doc was a big catalyst to moving us forward, him and Bob Brigham, and uh, I, I give those guys a ton of credit, but also the band, too. We went out there every single night kicking ass. No tapes, no sequences, no guys backstage, just four guys playing the shows, and the fans have spoken. MTV, by playing the videos, and you know, help from guys like Howard Stern, certainly uh, uh, put us in a different kind of, kind of a light and got a chance to reach a lot of people and a lot of ears. And that was important, I think, in the beginning days. To have you, get, you need all those proponents to happen for you in any band. Uh, it just doesn't happen all by itself. Remember, there was no internet back then. So it was, uh, you make a record, you take it on the road, go play and try to do every radio interview you can and reach as many people as possible. And maybe you'll get a little bit of a break, and we certainly did.
1: Did it, did it bother you a little bit that you were lumped in with those other bands when you felt your music was different? Because it's like all of a sudden people are, you know, as you said, you didn't have people smoke and shaking their asses and stuff like that, like Motley Crue. Did it bother you guys as artists and as performers that you were lumped into that when you felt you weren't? Uh,
0: to be honest with you, Pat, we were just grateful to be recognized whatsoever. We're talking, there's, there's, you know, at that time, Back in '89, it was thirty thousand records a year being put out. So to get catch anybody's attention is a great thing. To be on a Howard Stern show or on David Letterman or touring around the country with Badlands and Mr. Big, it was those are good moments for enoughs enough to be honest with you. Uh, we weren't really worried about anything like that at all. Plus, uh, at that time, we were a real rock band. We weren't homogenized. So uh, we obviously there was a there was some extracurricular activities that were happening with the group. Uh, in those early days where even though we had great management the inmates were still running the asylum uh, we it took a while for us to find our footing uh, but at the end if you look at it, uh, the big picture the songs were the most important thing and that's what resonated at the end of the day
1: now what happened when you started getting hitting it when you're on is that a picture of howard stern
0: yeah he gave it to me it was leroy Neiman actually handed it to me and then howard signed it to me that was pretty cool you know
1: how, how did you how did you hook up with Howard? How how did that all happen? Cuz I know he loved you guys.
0: Uh Dee Snyder from Twisted sister has a brother his name is Mark Snyder and Mark is a, a was a radio guy for Atco Records. Wonderful cat, and when we went to New York, Mark said, "Hey, there's this guy out there and uh in New York his name is Howard Stern and I think he'd really like your band. You want to come down and meet him?" I said, "Yeah, sure." We didn't know much about Howard cuz we're from Chicago, so we went down there had a wonderful show with him boy uh, guys are a huge fan of music period you know he loves the Ramones loves cheap trick. He's a big fan of the same kind of stuff that we love and uh, he put us on the radio to get a chance to talk to his audience. and from there uh, then he started doing TV shows. He was with channel 9 WGN he had his own TV gig that he was doing for a while and he had enoughs Enough on there which was wonderful. Gave us a chance to reach another audience. And then our friendship just developed in a, in a blossom. We went to dinner to him at his house. Then he had us, uh, he asked us if we wanted to do any recordings in his in his backyard. He had a like a little townhouse behind his house. He goes, you guys want to re- do your next record here, you can. I said, ah, bro, I'm going to pass on that. We, we prefer to stay friends with you because we knew if we brought uh, any of the rigmarole that we carried as a rock band over to his house it would wreck his marriage. <laughs> but, uh, he, just, he loved the band Beyond Belief, and I owe it all to Mark Snyder, uh, D's brother, who was, uh, he just knew, he had a, uh, um, he's very intuitive, he knew that Howard would love this kind of music, and boy, it was, a, it was a big shot in the arm for us to get him, because right after we did Howard Stern, we got the David Letterman thing, We Morty hired us over to play a, on a show, and uh, it changed the whole trajectory of an I up in those early days by, uh, taking the bull by the horns and develop at the end of the day you think about it bro uh, this business is predicated on friendships and relationships and and that's all we cared about is promotion in those uh formidable days we made a great record but we needed to go out there and play shows and meet people and we were not a lazy man we've i've always admired our strut
1: now Do you still talk to Donnie? I know things have gone back and forth. I know there's some other stuff. What's, what's the relationship with you guys now and with the name of your band?
0: Well, I I think that, you know, he's the one that told me to go out and sing these songs. I couldn't find him after he left the band 2013. I couldn't find him. He was, he was uh, incapacitated. Uh, So we just moved forward uh, as a, as a rock band. That was the most important thing to to continue to keep, to keep the ship on float (laughs) And, 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 and move the needle and uh, keep the legacy respectable. There was so many songs that we had out there and they're just sitting there. Nobody had anything going on. Like I said earlier, the inmates were on the asylum. Uh, but I reached out to him in 2015 for a record that I was doing with Frontiers that Derek Showman coincidentally was working with Frontiers at the time too. He, you know, he retired for a while you know, from Atco Records. He was over at Roadrunner and then he started, uh, uh, working with the guys over at Frontiers, and Derek's the one that called me and said, hey, I need another Enough Snuff album. So I called Donnie up. He was, obviously he wasn't in the band. And I said, uh, how would you like to put a record out with Frontiers of some of the older demos that I have, and I'll put a couple new songs on there as well. And he said, well, send me the material. Let me hear what it sounds like. And then he heard it. He goes, I, he goes you know what? It's got a great energy to this. He goes, I'm cool with that. And then they paid us, obviously. And it helped us because we were all... Uh, going through some tough times financially. Uh, and then from there, I went, uh, years later, uh, after uh, three successful Enough Snuff albums with me at the at the front, uh, I went back to him and said, hey, uh, we got a chance to do a deal with Cleopatra uh, with, with our catalog stuff. What do you think about that? And uh, his approach was, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, they want to put together uh, the whole catalog of the older material along with the box set. And uh, he says, you got the material. I said, I got all the songs. I've, I've saved everything from the beginning. He hasn't saved anything. Uh, and so I, that's what I did. I put together, it took me about three weeks to put together all the, all the songs off Dat tapes. Uh, into I went in the studio over at Stonecutter Studio with Chris Diamonds once again. And we listened to every single song. There was about 63 songs all together on, the, on what I had on Dat and on cassettes. And then we picked the, what I picked, what I thought was to be the best representation for the early days of Enough's Enough Enough. Because I'm playing drums on a lot of that stuff and guitars. And it was, just, it was just the two of us at that time. And I sent it to Donnie and he goes, uh, you know what, I, this feels good. Let's put it out there. And of course, you know, he gave me a hard time in the beginning of it. He didn't want the material to be heard. And I said, listen, this could be a nice thing for the diehard fans that are out there that have been following us for the last 20 years. And for the new generation out there as well. Why don't we just listen to our constituents and see what they have to say? His management company, along with our old manager, Herbie Herbert, who, God bless him, we just lost him uh, 10 days ago. Uh, wonderful manager. One of the greatest managers in the history of, of music, I think, in my opinion. He used to manage a Journey, of course, as well as Mr. Big and Steve Miller, Rock Set, Europe. He's so many great bands he had. And he said, you guys got to put it out there. He was the one that pushed me and said, Herbie Herbert was the one that pushed me and said, listen, this needs to be seen a light of day. Don't give up the masters. Maybe just put it out and license the songs to Cleopatra. And at least everything will be underneath one umbrella for you and Diane to navigate. And that's what I did. Uh, so the relationship in that way has been pretty good. Uh, lately though, it's been a little bit cantankerous, but I'm going to leave that alone. Uh, I'm, I'm, My main priority is to keep the legacy of Enough Snuff intact. We had 30 years, 29 years, 30 years together of making records and touring around the country. It's only fitting that I shouldn't have to stop. I think the fans have spoken. They buy the records. They see us live in concert. The shows are good. He's got a solo record. and, And to go a step further, I played on the solo record. I'm also on the video for Party Time that's out right now. Uh, I think I've showed a lot of resilience and uh, certainly a lot of respect and loyalty to the catalog and the legacy of Enough, enough. And I would think that uh, he'd be happy with something like that because uh, if Herbie Herbert's one of his last things he said to me was ship, if you didn't continue to move the needle forward with Enough, enough after he left the band for the third time, nobody would be talking about you. There'd be no licensing deals. There'd be no record deals. There'd be no touring you would be you know you have to do your own thing So in that way I think I've, I've held up to my bargain as a loyal brother and I think that he'll be able to in the future and these songs maybe there'll be a movie, a soundtrack a TV show a commercial something that's significant that he'll be able to get paid for. He got paid on this on the Cleopatra deals and I make sure that I do anything that with enough's enough through records or through labels, that he'll always be compensated. He'll always get a sync licensing. I think that's pretty good. I'm looking out for him more than anybody else because uh, I care about what we do as the band and I care about these songs. It's my life.
1: Well, you talk about the legacy. How has your writing changed over the years? Because it is a, it is a big legacy. And, you've, you're, you know, when you started, it was a different landscape of music and you guys have yeah. weathered it. But how have you personally, how has your writing changed
0: Well, if you look at what's happening in the world right now, there's certainly plenty of subject matter to write about, tons of fodder. Uh, Well, in the old days, it was two guys getting to write the songs together. And nowadays, that's four of us. I can sit down with my whole gang, and I think it's a pretty wide open to interpretation of what you're going to write about. These songs that I've been putting together for the last three, four albums, is about... Some of them are audio but a lot of them are just about everyday experiences that I went through, and perhaps the audience did as well. I never like to talk about the songs they're about, because what it means to one person might mean something to another. Uh, but the songs just come, and I don't, uh, it's a blessing from the good Lord. I'm lucky to keep coming up with material, and uh, there's plenty of it out there still. Uh, I'll have put out three records alone this year, outside of all the stuff that I've been producing, because I've been producing a lot of records too, Pat. I just did the Steve Ramone record. That's going to be out on pavement. I also did uh, Midnight Devils. That record will be coming out. I did the Marquishi record. That album's out right now. Uh, I've done six records in the last year. That's a lot of... Ask any producer or engineer or any band. That's quite a bit of, of work for, for one year of, of of being shut down. And I did a whole tour with Faster Pussycat. So I just try to keep myself immersed and working all the time, whether it's here on Blue Island in my home recording studio or I'm in Los Angeles at, at Music Grinder A&M or downtown in Chicago at CRC or Stonecutter Studios. Whatever the work may will you bring me, wherever people are looking for music, I'm your ticket.
1: Got a few more questions for you, then we'll get you out of here. Uh, what were what some of your what would you consider some of the high points of your careers? And then also, what were some of the low points of your careers? Because you lived a rock and roll life and as I said, a lot of people disappear. You got, you've been around. You're still making music. You're busier. You're busier now than you were, it seems, years ago just because you, you're proactive. But what were some of the high points and some of the low points in your career as a rocker?
0: Uh, high points of my career is having my daughter Tara. That's a high point. That's for sure. In music, I would have to say uh, that first, The first two records were very well received around the country. Doing those uh, David Letterman shows and uh, and Howard Stern's relationship we have, uh, those were very significant as well. Uh, any of the tours out there, playing with all the big bands that I've toured with around the country, and Pat, it's quite a few of them out there, okay? I've shared the stage with some of the biggest bands in the world, and there's a reason why, because uh, they were big fans of the band. They love what we were doing, and uh, they respected uh, the music that we were putting out. So when I look at that, I, I got to tell you, uh, I'm pulling out right now. I, I'm looking at some of the bands that we, we tour with out in the, around the country. And you can't say enough about, uh, some of the, we share on the stage with cheap trick or the kinks tragically hip, Def Leppard, Leonard Skinner, material issue, Joe Walsh, Foreigner, Alice Cooper. And the list goes on and on. Uh, that's pretty significant right there. Those are pretty high points. Low points, uh, uh, the band in, in our promiscuous substance abuse days certainly missed a step on a, a lot of great opportunities out there. Uh, Donnie leaving the band for the third time in 2013 was certainly a, a shot in the arm for me. And, uh, it, but it made me take a different approach to what we're going to do. And I, When I go out and tour now in the second half of my life, I want to make sure that I'm happy and comfortable. And I want the guys around me to feel the same way. And as long as we can continue to put out great records and go out and tour and have solid rock shows, I think I—I I think I nailed it. Well, that's great.
1: Now, also, how many hats do you have? Because as you see, I have a lot of hats here. You always have great hats. How many hats do you have?
0: Hundreds. I get them from all around the country too. You know, and some of the finest ones I have found around. You know, outside over in Camden and uh, England. Uh, wonderful places over in uh, Japan. I found great, great caps out there, beautiful stuff out there. And then, believe it or not, from the Rock fans, you know. What a great one I just got just recently, too. Uh, I find them all over the place. The fans, they bring them out to me as well. Uh, I got I got a friend of mine out in Vegas. She makes hats all the time. Some great stuff. Uh, that's part of my... Uh, I'm um, like a cartoon character. How, how did you
1: cultivate that look? How, how did this How did this look come about? Because you you got the big glasses, which I don't even know where you find the big glasses, and they look good on you. For me, I look like you know a fly if I wore big glasses. How did you cultivate this look?
0: I don't know. It just came to me. Billy Corrigan calls the round shades. He says, "Oh, the chips and up shades." <laughs> I like that. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just I've always wore sunglasses, and I've always wore caps. I like the look. I mean, perhaps it's some subconsciously uh, nicking off of John Lennon because he wore these kind of caps, too. I know that. I uh, just don't know where it comes from. I just know I stand alone. And uh, if you're going to come, people are going to call you chips enough. So <laughs> well, I have no answer for you right there. I just know that uh, I've always been uh, a guy who in the style and all the bands I've grown up with, especially across the pond, have always had a, a great strut that I that I've admired. And uh, the hat and, uh, and the glass are just an accessory to the music. That's all.
1: Now, you have some tour dates coming up. What can people expect in your live show? Are you going to play a lot of the Hard Rock Night, like you did on the stream, or are you going to mix it up? What can they expect when they come to see you?
0: I, it'll be a potpourri of enough, enough material from the early days all the way through. I mean, we have 20 albums to navigate, so you'll hear all the material there. Uh, but perhaps some of these shows, you're going to get Beatles I'm going to play this Hard Rock Night record its entirety. I just did it in Denver. Sold out people just hailed those Beatles songs. So I don't know what it's going to be. It'll be probably a mixture of both. Uh, but expect to see a four ring circus and uh, a real rock band at the end with no synthesizers, no guys underneath the fucking stage. It's a real rock band playing these songs. And that'll make it special. And uh, hopefully I'll still look close to what I looked like a long time ago. You see my look right now? I'm not liking the. I'm not very happy, but but my weight's good, I feel healthy, and my band is in good shape too as well, so we'll show up there with all the bells and whistles, and, uh, uh, and hopefully some peace signs and paisleys as well.
1: That's great, man. You know, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to me today. People, uh, go check out the website enoughsenough.com. I know you're on Twitter, Chip's on Twitter, uh, follow him on Twitter, Chip's Enough. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 880 episodes there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. On Twitter, it's at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.